Hi, everybody. It's Linda Laurel, and this is Our Voices Matter podcast. Thanks so much for joining us for this very special episode. My guests today are Jesse Morton and Nihad Jariri. Jesse is a former recruiter for Al-Qaeda, who now runs an organization called Parallel Networks, which is dedicated to combating hate and extremism. Nihad is an Arab journalist and documentary producer currently focused on jihadism. She recently returned from spending weeks in Kabul just before it fell into the hands of the Taliban. I asked my friend Denise Hamilton to join me as a co-host for this episode, which was recorded live on Clubhouse, the social audio app. Denise is the CEO of Watch Her Work. She's also a diversity and inclusion strategist and a phenomenal keynote speaker. More than 900 people joined us for this conversation that you are about to hear. And the conversation is about what is happening on the ground in Afghanistan. But we're looking at this from what we hope is a slightly different perspective from what you might have already seen and heard. We are trying to provide an insider's perspective in this conversation on what is likely to happen next from two vantage points. How terrorist groups are planning to use the fall of Afghanistan for their benefit and what is already happening or is likely to happen to women and girls and whether control under the Taliban today might differ from their control before the war. My guests, given their backgrounds, can offer us unique perspectives as we seek to understand what is happening in horror before our eyes. As a recruiter for Al-Qaeda in its early days, Jesse was one of the architects of those slick marketing videos that became an invaluable tool for enticing disaffected men from all over the world to join the movement. I've interviewed Jesse before, and I urge you to go back and especially watch that first one, which is called The Ivy League Terrorist, because he goes into great detail about his background and growing up and what led him to become enthralled with the terrorist movement. But we pick up our conversation with Jesse speaking from the perspective of having been an architect of those slick marketing videos and talking about that in relation to the tactics that are being used right now during the current crisis and the rise of the Taliban. I want you to connect the dots yeah. just for a couple minutes between what you did uh-huh. when you were uh, creating those original videos. And I was uh-huh. just reading this morning that there are, there are now there's now a spate of what are considered to be fake videos of the Taliban. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I want to know what you know. What were you doing then, as the, as an Al Qaeda recruiter, that mm-hmm. is connecting to what is happening today? Mm-hmm. So basically, what we did was we innovated to the degree where we utilized social media in a way where it was much more savvy than what was coming from the Middle East. We developed English language glossy jihadist magazines. First, they started in the United States called Jihad Recollections. And then when my colleagues, Anwar Aldaki and Samir Khan, moved to join al-Qaeda uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, they launched them as Inspire. And Inspire magazine was launched after I created a global threat by threatening the writers of South Park for portraying the Prophet Muhammad in a film. So long story short, the way that we built our ecosystem for transmedia communications was that we had a 24-7 one-stop shop for jihadist propaganda that operated under the guise of the First Amendment. And we used uh, we developed glossy 
uh, images. We developed uh, professional quality videos. What we did was we made Al-Qaeda's narrative uh, look like it was um, on Hollywood uh, or on Madison Avenue, if you will. We took best marketing strategies and made it appeal to the West. And so, and, and so la- last question about this, and then I'm going to switch to mm-hmm. Nihad for a minute. So how do you, how do you see this playing out now well, well, in your in your work that you're doing behind the scenes as you're seeing you know how these how the terrorist groups right now in the wake of everything that's going on how well, are they positioning themselves well what we have is we have the continuous tw- after 20 years we have essentially the jihadists concluding that the war on terror has been won in the way that they maintained it was through digital jihad and now what we see coming out from the taliban is a much more sophisticated propaganda apparatus that will have widespread appeal and will regalvanize the jihadist community and make them compete with one another for better propaganda and better radicalization. And the consequences of that, I'm sure we'll get to further in the discussion, but at a macro, meso and micro level, um, it is a resurrection of a threat that in some ways, just like when we killed Osama bin Laden in 2011, we assumed would die down. So the strategy has been adjusted away from a primary focus on counterterrorism and efforts to end the global war on terror so that we can concentrate on power state competition. And essentially now we're entering a phase where we have to reconsider and recalibrate uh, because we are going to witness the rejuvenation uh, and the reinvigoration of a very potent set of uh, ideas uh, espoused professionally uh, online and linked to real world action. Uh, And that is the ingredient uh, that makes the jihadist propaganda so uh, powerful. Nihad, um, I understand that you recently returned from Kabul um, tell us a little bit about why you were there um, and and what you were trying to achieve in terms of your role as a documentary fil- film producer and a journalist. Uh, thank you, Linda. Marhaba. Assalamu alaikum. Sabah al khair to everybody uh, who's joining us on a Saturday. It's uh, also a weekend here in Jordan. So I uh, went to Kabul on the 18th of July. And I went on assignment for Al-An uh, Television. Uh, it's a media company um, based in uh, Dubai. And I actually, I could feel that things were going so fast. Uh, there were things that I couldn't understand from all the interviews that I did for uh, my podcast on jihadism. So I wanted to see for myself. And I, and I really wanted to see how life is like because I... I could feel that Taliban were going to take over Kabul. So I wanted at a certain point in the future to go back to something and measure this change in in life and attitude in Kabul. So I had to be there. I was there on the 18th and I left on the evening of the 9th of August, just six days before uh, they um, marched, uh, so to speak, into uh, Kabul. Kabul, it's, it's everything that we do not expect it to be. Uh, we expect to, uh, to see a, a desert um, kind of town uh, with the, that is so far away from civilization, any kind, any form of civilization or what we think civilization is from the physical, like internet or infrastructure. Uh, to the, um, you know, to things that, uh, to ideas uh, and culture, uh, like education and sophistication and open-mindedness and freedom to walk on the street. Uh, Kabul is, um, well, it's very much like my hometown, Amman. 
and for people who uh, know Amman, they will know what I mean. It's really surprising. I was really surprised to see certain corners of Kabul uh, where I didn't feel uh, like a stranger. Uh, the infrastructure is, is uh, um, bad, but other than that, it's, it's a vibrant city. Uh, Afghans really work hard uh, to uh, make something out of their uh, lives. And uh, that was really striking uh, and surprising. I felt like a child in a playground. I was fascinated with everything, uh, no matter how mundane it, it was. But again, that was not what I had expected of uh, Kabul. Um, High-rising buildings, beautiful landscapes, parks, restaurants, cafes young men and women and in, in, in a coffee shop and the sophistication when you speak to afghans the sophistication when you speak to women women are so educated the women that i that i met of course and they were diverse i met uh, housewives i met activists i met old and young uh, women entrepreneurs uh, government officials and th they were all so uh, fascinating um, and on the streets of Kabul, you don't really see the government. You don't see proper infrastructure, uh, but you see the people, entrepreneurs, ordinary Afghans who are going around, going about their own daily lives, trying to to get to to, to earn their uh, their livelihood and uh, trying to make something. And that's so why had... I believe. Mm. Nihad, during during this time, in when you were there in the few days right before the Taliban took over, and you talk about the the women that you met, women in in positions of authority, um, what were the conversations that you were having with them in terms of their um, their expectation and 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 fear of what was about to happen with the Taliban coming to take over? Well, when I met uh, uh, women in authority in Afghanistan, whether current in current positions or in former positions, I um, I always ask them about how life uh, is like under Taliban because this is something that we hear about, that we read about, and I wanted really to have that very close and very uh, credible um, account of what is life like under Taliban, and then to ask them where we are, where they, they were uh, at that point uh, in time and, and uh, how they made uh, a difference. I spoke to uh, Shukriya Barakzai. She was a uh, former uh, Afghan ambassador to Norway. And uh, Shukriya Barakzai ran, ran underground schools for girls under Taliban simply because at one point during the Taliban rule, she had to take her um, daughter to, to, to the doctor and she didn't have a mahram and the uh, Taliban uh, just whipped her because she didn't have uh, a mahram and she's educated um, and she comes from um, a very good family. So she decided to uh, hold underground schools for girls and she would describe how they used to hide uh, the uh, school textbooks underneath the girls' uh, um, uh, uniform or uh, whatever they uh, they wore at that uh, time so as to uh, protect them and to guarantee their safety because if Taliban saw um, a girl with a book, that would mean uh, something. And same thing with the, with the member of uh, the uh, government, well, the former government uh, delegation to the Doha talks, uh, uh, Fawzi Kufi, 
she also ran a similar uh, project and uh, she was uh, there were two assassination attempts against her life taliban themselves claimed one uh, assassination attempt in 2010 and then she was there uh, negotiating with them so that was and and, and i also asked them if they were uh, fearful of of what to come and to tell you the truth, uh, everybody I spoke to, whether uh, these women in authority or other uh, female entrepreneurs, um, they were very optimistic that Taliban will not get their way this time. This time it's different. Taliban could win back in the late 90s because uh, Kabul was, what, um, uh, less than 500,000, um, you know, uh, uh, residents, but now Kabul is... Uh, uh, is I think five or six million people and times are different so they were so optimistic that Taliban will not get their way not this time and that they will stand up and stand against going back to the stone age of the Taliban rule do you think that's wishful thinking on their part or do you is that based upon something in fact I think uh, their resolve, uh, and not only these women, it's everybody I spoke to. I was the least optimistic among them all. Even when I left the hotel on Monday evening, uh, people were asking, when will you come back? And I would say, well, I'll see if Taliban will grant me a visa. And they would laugh. They didn't think it was going to happen, but it was obvious it, it was happening. Well, not within six days, but it was happening. And I think, uh, well, something very wrong happened somewhere. Even the uh, delegates, the negotiators didn't know what was going on. And uh, uh, I think history will tell how the Taliban managed to uh, overtake all of Afghanistan and specifically Kabul. And I think the, 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 the fall of Kabul, it did not, uh, start. Um, it did not happen on Sunday, August 15th. I think it happened on August 6th, on a Friday, when Taliban assassinated Dawahan Minapal, who was the uh, media man. Uh, he was in charge of the media information office uh, at the presidential palace. He was assassinated on the street of Kabul and Zabihullah Mujahid the Taliban spokesman, the elusive figure who finally appeared to the media just a couple of days ago. He was sending assurances to the Afghan people from the very seat where Minapal sat. I could feel the change in the mood in Kabul and the people um, I, uh, I, I, was, I, I became friends with and people I had interviews lined up with. I could feel the change with Mina Pal's assassination, not with the uh, explosion that happened on the 3rd of August, because the explosion, people, um, Afghans actually on that night, I went out on that night, uh, the night of the explosion, and people were everywhere. Uh, they were not afraid, <laughs> afraid, they were not scared. They were everywhere in the parks, in the restaurants. And uh, the, um, the traffic, it, I mean, the streets were jammed, not because people were running away from something, just that was the normal um, uh, in, uh, in Kabul. I asked, I specifically asked about that. And that was the night of the Allahu Akbar campaign. 
they, I think people thought that uh, this explosion that targeted the, the house of uh, the uh, defense minister, it was Taliban against government officials. So the ordinary people had really very little to do with it, especially that it happened in the so-called green zone, uh, which is... Uh, a beautiful, a very expensive area of uh, Kabul, and well, um, it's it's a very secure area. Um, so people didn't think much of it. But when Minapal was assassinated on uh, an ordinary, on a, on an everyday um, route uh, in Kabul, he was killed, I think, nearby uh, a neighborhood called uh, Kartese, uh, which is, I think, mostly Shiite uh, neighborhood. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, from what I heard from his friends, that uh, he was back from Friday prayers and he was getting something for his child and he was not in a convoy. He was riding an ordinary taxi. And that is when activists, open-minded Afghans, young Afghans, women, when they felt that things were not going well. And that was when I found it very hard to line up interviews and uh, I actually had something lined up for Saturday. The assassination was on a Friday and on Saturday I was going to meet Hazara Shiite young uh, men and women and all of a sudden on a Saturday they asked that I um, conceal their identities because they were scared. You know, I was just, I was wondering about that. I was wondering if, did you leave the country earlier than you had anticipated because of what was unfolding and, and when it unfolded? It's so interesting to hear you say that, that you believe that the fall of Kabul actually happened almost a week before the, the 15th. Well, um, I'm very sad to say uh, I left Kabul because um, all the major stories that I had lined up, well, I, I did the task and because uh, I was afraid that the borders were going to close because of COVID. <laughs> it's, it's really ironic. I keep beating myself because I should have stayed longer. But uh, really, that was the reason. I could feel that uh, things were not going well because of the uh, speed at which uh, 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 Taliban were taking areas, but but that was that really didn't matter. It, it didn't matter. What mattered was Kabul itself, and uh, Kabul has always uh, been, I think, uh, at least to me as a foreigner, a sanctuary. Like uh, nobody would allow Kabul to fall because the fall of Kabul would mean end of the game, and the game is still well. The ball is still rolling there are still negotiations uh, they have not yet come up with uh, with a formula for uh, this uh, governance and uh, there are still issues not resolved with the bombing uh, there was a little bit of hesitation i mean um, uh, I, you could feel that the mood changed but it really changed sharply with the assassination of menapal and i think uh, that was it. It was just a matter of time before Kabul uh, fell. And the way it, it fell actually to Taliban uh, is so, I don't know if it's the right word, but a bit ceremonial. Um, it's, 
it's very ironic. So that was the reason actually I left. It was because I was afraid that I will be, my visa will expire and that the borders will close because of COVID, because already my flight, I was supposed to have left on the 31st of July. My flight was canceled because of COVID. So I said, well, what the hell, I will extend for a few more days. And uh, that was it. And so um, as we were preparing to, to do the room, you mentioned that you had been in touch with a couple of um, your friends in Kabul. Um, tell us how they are and, and what happened. Well, uh, even before I had left, uh, my uh, friends from the Hazara community had taken to the ground. Uh, they wouldn't even leave uh, their, um, the, their homes. Um, we used to meet a lot in uh, this uh, Karta Chahar. Uh, it's a neighborhood in Kabul. It's so beautiful. It's nearby a university, Khatamun Nabiyin. And it's, uh, it's, it's full of coffee shops. You know, this, the, the proper, the typical uh, university neighborhood where you see uh, students uh, uh, everywhere. And the coffee shops, well-designed. Uh, the food is great. The masala tea is unbelievable. And, uh, you know, the general mood, it's, it's just, it's so much pleasure to hang out in that uh, area. My Hazara friends, they took to the, to, to the ground. I mean, um, I couldn't see them before I had left because of, uh, since the Manapal um, assassination. And uh, when Kabul fell, I keep receiving messages from my other friends who are journalists, cameramen, producers. One of them made it safely to Pakistan. And I, I said, well, just just hide, just lay low and things will settle down. And he said, uh, and I told him, well, it, there is no bloodshed, alhamdulillah. Things are uh, settling down. And he said, this is today. What about tomorrow? Um, so he made it safely to Pakistan. I have a government official, a friend of mine, a female. Uh, she, she, she's, she's marvelous. She's amazing. Um, she's a true fighter. But uh, uh, her husband works for the army and they finally made it to Poland. I have a friend who's, uh, who works, uh, who's a diplomat, actually. He works uh, at the foreign ministry and he's, uh, he's stuck in Kabul. Uh, he, he couldn't get him, uh, his name on any list to, to be evacuated. I, my friends, they keep sending me pictures of, uh, of their bruises because Taliban would hit on them on the street. They are journalists, a couple of young female journalists. They just don't, don't know what to do. One of them is stranded in Kabul because her family is in Badakhshan, northern uh, Afghanistan, and she can't leave. She, she can't go anywhere and she she didn't have any money and not even to uh, top up her uh, mobile and call them and they didn't, didn't have internet it's um, uh, it's just it's one just, big mess yeah it is it, it is um thank you for for giving us a, a real visualization of of what Kabul is like and and how things have been unfolding over the last few weeks there on the ground. Um, I, I'm, I want to bring Jesse back into the conversation. Um, and Denise, I want you to jump in too. But I, I, I want to connect the dots now between what Nihad just said. Surprisingly, that some of the women that you talked with, um, Nihad, were optimistic that 
things might not go back to the way they were pre-war 20 years ago under Taliban rule as it relates to how they um, treat women and girls. Jesse, uh, from your perspective, I know you are you are you know tuned into the back channels of of what is going on. What do you think? Are they being naive? What what is what is it going to look like under the Taliban this? Well, mostly uh, what we have is we have a distinguishment in the Taliban's uh, ideology related to Islamic government that differentiates itself from the more what you might call Wahhabist approach. Uh, that more predominated ISIS. So it does have some room and Saudi Arabia, actually, we should say, and others. Um, but it does have some room for adjustment and the claims that they have learned, uh, I think that they have learned with regard to public relations uh, because they certainly will need to control and we see that and a lot of accusations that that is the case. I don't think it really will change the dynamics. In fact, women were allowed to go to school and work under Taliban rule in the 90s. Um, uh, but they could only work in certain professions. And the commonplace happenings of whipping women on the street for showing certain body parts that they would consider forbidden because under their uh, interpretation, it's even uh, forbidden to show face. Uh, it's not just hijab. It's, uh, the burqa is, is something that will become more and more mandatory. Uh, the opportunities for women will certainly decrease. Um, but uh, there is definitely a concerted effort for them to portray uh, an image uh, that they have learned. And in fact, they probably have learned a great deal uh, throughout the last 20 years on the importance of playing a realpolitik, if you will, in the international arena, and then at a domestic level, making sure that they guarantee, you know, one of the complicated things about the Taliban's rule in the 90s was that it was very impossible for journalists to get in and to show us what was really going on. It was only the effect of uh, people that were able to sneak in that we realized how serious the uh, uh, the implementation of their interpretation of Islamic law was that brought awareness to the type of fundamentalist uh, implementation of the law. So I think it won't be much of a change from what it was in the 1990s because a lot of people think uh, uh, that uh, in essence the accusations that uh, women were not going to school back then uh, were not completely uh, valid. Uh, however, at a proportion of being able to provide education and university quality education and to transition and to develop the economy. And I don't see the Taliban having a, an ability to govern uh, unless they turn uh, east and they get assistance from uh, China and turn west and get assistance from Iran in the, in, in, in the level of uh, development. But I think that's what we're looking at is the real tragedy of this is that the Afghan people have been suffering uh, for the last 20 years amidst uh, war and conflict. And to some degree, no matter uh, the difficulties and, you know, definitely the Afghan government is plagued by corruption uh, and was plagued by corruption, but there still was development on the ground. There still was international aid that could prevent massive catastrophe and crises. I think within a number of months, uh, we're going to see a return to a humanitarian crisis with the conundrum of whether or not we get involved to help the Afghan people, which essentially is akin to recognition of the Taliban and their control over the country. Uh, or whether or not we let that void that taps into the big power state competition that is also simultaneously unfolding in the background mm -hmm. of all of this with regard to the increasing uh, influence of authoritarian uh, power in the world and an attempt so, to replace the liberal order. So, Jesse, let's let's bring Al-Qaeda mm -hmm. and ISIS into this part of the conversation, because there's been a lot more there's been a lot more media coverage of um 
Al Qaeda and its sort of behind the scenes role in mm-hmm. all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, the administration, the President Biden's administration is saying that Al Qaeda is not there. Um, but all the experts are saying, yeah, they are. And we know mm-hmm. they are. And mm-hmm. there are at least a thousand or so of them. Mm-hmm. So um, what are you what do you know from from your channels and as as someone who, you know, used to recruit for them? What are you hearing about Al Qaeda's presence and role in what is unfolding and what their role is likely to be going forward? So it's very important to distinguish Al Qaeda from the type of uh, approach that ISIS uh, took. So ISIS was a widespread movement. Al Qaeda does not believe in that. They believe in the power of the individual to influence the situation. And so when Al Qaeda goes to a certain territory, they prefer to stay in the shadows and to direct and to influence movement on the ground. So, for example, when Nihad mentions the assassination of Dawa Khan and the approach that, that led to uh, Zabila Mujahid to show his face, this is kind of like it has Al-Qaeda written all over it. Because what they did the day before September the 11th is Osama bin Laden sent suicide bombers that had a, su- a, a bomb in a video camera to kill uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud because they understood the power of ideas. And Ahmed Shah Massoud was the most... Uh, popular uh, figurehead that could have been put in a position where he could have mobilized the Afghan people. So in predicting the reaction to September the 11th, they took out a key figurehead. So they don't think in terms of numbers, they think in terms of influencers. And they sit back behind the scenes and they very much direct uh, situations. And so they're embedded with a group that is in charge of security called the Haqqani Network. And the Haqqani Network is kind of dangerous because it has relationships with bin Laden that go all the way back to the Soviet Afghan Jihad. It's likely the group that is responsible for housing and hosting the majority of these Al-Qaeda commanders um, who bring money from the Gulf and bring money from around the Muslim world. And that's one thing that they bring. They also bring strategic direction and religious direction with regard to uh, advising uh, the Taliban on what to do next. And so, you know, long story short, they understand the role of the media, they understand the role of PR, and they probably have a lot of influence with regard to the direction the state will take. And there's probably is an agreement that they will know will not plot attacks, at least for the time being, uh, on the West. But the only final other point I want to make is the resonance of what this does for Al-Qaeda. Because with the Haqqani network in control in large degrees and in cahoots with the uh, ISI in Pakistan, it creates a new opportunity for migration. And the fall of Kabul resembles something that is very much attached to itself in the prophetic and Quranic tradition. There is an entire uh, short uh, chapter of the Quran that is called the Surat al-Fat, which means the opening, the opening of Mecca. And the Prophet Muhammad in the legacy of Mecca, he took it peacefully. He essentially marched on Mecca after he had to migrate to Medina and he marched on Mecca with 10,000 soldiers uh, and uh, the Meccans who had uh, cast him out during 13 years of his preaching um, uh, basically allowed him to take the city without any conflict. And so to the jihadist community, it looks like the retaking of Kabul is a further indication of prophecy that the black flags will be raised from Khorasan because they're emulating the practice of the prophet because they were able to take uh, the city without a lot of conflict and to control the capital city. So for the chatter that's going on in the jihadist community, there's two components going on. Al-Qaeda has been much more active uh, and prolific with regard to conversating about this new opportunity and using it to show that the strategy of barbarity that ISIS took uh, and the uh, miscalculations that they took with regard to the establishment of their caliphate further prove 
that people in the jihadist community should have stayed with al-Qaeda and their allies all along. Uh, and on the ISIS end of the spectrum, we also have to worry because that is where a foreign terrorist plot could certainly be hatched. And there are several hundred, if not 2,000 uh, supporters of ISIS that uh, the Taliban has been uh, warring against. There is no doubt about that. Uh, but they still uh, are very active and it creates a safe haven that has complications uh, for the future going forward uh, on both fronts. So this is feeding into a regalvanization of communication in the jihadist community. Jihadists uh, always pay attention to current events. And this is a significant event because for the jihadist community, it uh, represents the fulfillment of bin Laden's goal. He told us that he was not fighting us for human rights and our democracy, that he was bleeding us to bankruptcy in the Middle East, that he fought guerrilla war against the Soviets for 10 years, and that he thought it would take him 20 years uh, to deplete us. And so as we originally intended to withdraw on September the 11th from Afghanistan on the 20th year sort of anniversary for the jihadists, this is almost as if it's a dream come true. And it's an indication that after suffering uh, over the past few years in periods of defeat, that in fact, for those that are patient and that continue to wage jihad, no matter the circumstances outside mm -hmm. themselves, the victory is always on the nine. Mm -hmm. And Nihad, um, you're focused, um, your documentary work right now on jihadism. So what is what is your take on, on, on what Jesse just said and what's your perspective? Um, well, I differ with Jesse, just a little bit. That's fine. Um, Want to hear Taliban. what you think? <laughs> Absolutely. Go for it. Uh, well, uh, uh, in, in the world of jihadism, really, uh, there are several ways of, of, of seeing the same thing. And uh, this has always been problematic, not only when it comes to the interpretation of the sacred uh, scripture, but also interpretation of, uh, uh, of what happens on, on the ground. For instance, uh, uh, people like um, ISIS, they see the fact that uh, uh, Taliban uh, has um, finally uh, taken over uh, Kabul uh, despite 20 years of, uh, uh, of war. They say, they say that this is an indication that the America wants to send out a message to jihadists that no matter how long you fight, you will not get there. But if you negotiate, you might get there. So this is the point of view of, uh, of ISIS, of Daesh. And actually, what Taliban has done, regardless of uh, whether jihadists, some jihadists believe in, in what they have done or not, is that Taliban has emboldened jihadists everywhere in the world to follow suit. These are not freedom fighters. We keep or some of us keep treating these guys as freedom fighters. They are not, they do not fight for rights. They fight for an ideology, their own ideology, and for the imposition of that ideology on a certain, on a given community and beyond. So ironically, the Taghut, the enemy of the people whom they are, they claim to be fighting, they become the Taghut. They become the enemy of the people, and we have seen that in, uh, in Mosul and uh, Raqqa, and we are seeing this in Idlib with Hayat uh, Tahrir al-Sham. Now, uh, when it comes to the reaction of jihadists to what has happened, we have three categories. There is ISIS, who deny uh, uh, what Taliban has uh, done, and they think that uh, Taliban are murtaddin, they are not real Muslims because they accepted to negotiate with the enemy, with the West, with the 
kuffar, the apostates. So uh, the approach of Taliban is not the true uh, path of their ideology. And there are the Qaeda supporters who are of two categories, ironically. Those who are wholeheartedly with Taliban, uh, and they believe that Taliban has finally conquered the superpower of the world and that they have provided a model that should be followed. The other group, and basically these are the followers of Abu Muhammad al-Maqdisi, they are cautious optimistic, uh, optimists because they, they say that, that while uh, we are happy to see um, the West, uh, and not only the West actually, every liberal, every, every other uh, form of governance, um, defeated, we still have reservations because we need to see how Taliban will resolve some controversial uh, religious issues uh, like the governance. Um, who, how, how will they um, govern? Because to these guys, to the, to the Qaeda, to the jihadists, whether ISIS or otherwise, and even HTS, Hayat Harir Sham, democracy elections is a form of apostasy. There is only one forum, one way to govern, and that is to do the bay'ah and the Amir al-Mu'mineen and, and all that. There is no democracy. There is no rule of the majority of, of the people. If the people want to, uh, well, they, they want to sanction uh, uh, an issue that goes against uh, their, uh, the way they view Sharia, uh, this doesn't work with them. So governance is one um, aspect, controversial aspect that Taliban will have to deal with. And another issue is how Taliban deals with the other, with, with the West, with the neighbors, with China. Taliban has already offered assurances to China, whitewashing the Uyghur issue. Now, to these jihadists, you, uh, the fact that you uh, align yourself or you champion um, an apostate against your Muslim uh, brethren is a form of apostasy itself. So it's really complicated when it comes to how, will, how uh, Taliban will keep this relationship with the jihadists. Such an interesting, um, I was taking copious notes as you were talking, um, Nihad. It really is helping us to help, helping us to understand the complexity of the issue. Absolutely, absolutely. I know there's so many people in the audience that have so many questions and there's so much we don't understand about this region of the world. And, you know, one thing that I've already gotten from this conversation is the sophistication, right? I really have enjoyed learning um, both from um, Jesse in terms of understanding even the notion of digital jihad has been a very interesting concept that I'm, I'm sitting over here chewing on of like, okay, what does that mean? And how does that work? And how do you address that? And that you have to approach these challenges. It was such a sophisticated um, approach. Um, and then also Niha's beautiful, beautiful um, depiction of amazing areas and regions of Kabul. And we don't think about it that way. We, we don't think about these um, places as 
um, beautiful spaces where learning has been happening, right? And what the loss is and what the changes um, are going to be. And so from a, a, an American perspective, as one who is in the receiving end of certain types of depictions of this battle and of this conflict, this conversation has already been extremely valuable. So if you're in the audience and you know a friend that should be in this room. This room has really exploded, which is, I think, really a, a powerful indicator of how interconnected we are as a global community and how much we deeply care about each other across the world. So I, I really, I'm taking great, great encouragement, Linda, at the number of people that have stopped and given us a little bit of time on a Saturday morning to learn more. And so we want to invite some folks to come on up and we're going to bring you up in, in very small um, pockets. And so um, we have Mohammed that's come to the stage. Hi, Mohammed, How are you? Um, what question do you have for our Hi, Denise. Hi, Linda. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, 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 good morning, uh, Nihad and Jesse, and thank you for uh, uh, sharing uh, our thoughts uh, with us. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, a question directly to Jesse. Uh, by, uh, um, uh, by having, by having uh, USA troops uh, in Afghanistan, USA was able to keep peace uh, and to maintain uh, uh, the political regime there. But uh, as we as we can see right now, and after. Uh, uh, America is getting all of uh, its troops out of uh, Afghanistan. Afghanistan is going to be uh, a great mess. Uh, is going to be a failed state, and with a high probabilities of uh, having uh, extremist and political Islam uh, terrorists or uh, extremists. So my question is: Do you think uh, that uh, this uh, territory, this land, this uh, uh, Afghanistan? is going to be a, a, a big challenge uh, to uh, all the surrounded current, uh, uh, countries. I mean, that is going to be like a, a, a wolf war, a wolf's war between Pakistan, uh, China, uh, uh, Iran, uh, Russia, and even the outer circle, which includes uh, India and uh, Turkey. Thank you. Yes, thank you for the question. I think Nihad would have a lot to say about it as well. But from a geopolitical macro circumstance, we find ourselves already in a resurrection of power state competition. Uh, China and uh, Russia, uh, along with a certain ally in Iran, uh, have a strategy uh, that essentially represents the complete destruction of the liberal world order that was established in the post-World War II era. Uh, they are calling it for a rule-based order, which is much more conducive to the support of authoritarian regimes. And so it would not be a violation of China, for example, or Russia or Iran, for example. Uh, it wouldn't be a burden to the principles upon which they established their foreign policy to develop relations with Afghanistan. Uh, on the Chinese side, they have the long-term strategy of developing the Belt Road Initiative, which is essentially a resurrection of uh, a uh, railway, a high-speed rail that would run all the way through the Middle East. Going through Afghanistan is key to their strategy and would establish an ability for them to further uh, disaggregate from dollar dependency. They want to build it with the dollar bills that they have uh, cashed in their central bank in order to make their own currency more predominant in the international arena. Uh, Russia's perspective is largely that uh, they are engaged in a long-term protracted conflict that is largely ideological, uh, largely political, 
against the United States uh, and its Western allies. Uh, and for them, the enemy of your enemy is your friend. Uh, and so it would not be um, unlikely uh, to see Russia try to get involved in an ability to uh, further their own interests by developing uh, relations. And what that represents is it represents a very serious problem for us. Um, because domestically, we have transitioned into focusing on our own domestic extremist threat, and we have begun this drawdown of the war on terror in order to wage that power state competition. So this further hinders our ability to move forward and to pose a realistic challenge. Also, 20 years of the war on terror has delegitimized and discredited the United States in the minds of most of the Middle East and uh, Southeast Asian youth. So it's very hard for us to project a vision and to stress the importance and the value of human rights and, and liberty. That does not mean that there is not support for individual liberty and that there will not be resistance amongst youth in Afghanistan and youth around the Middle East. But what we do see is this is not just a uh, failure uh, from U.S. strategic interest perspective, but it is actually a further indication that we are facing a systemic collapse if we don't reverse course of that liberal world order and a rising, increasing influence of authoritarianism uh, throughout the world. It's a further indicator that that could become uh, a very real possibility. And additional to that final point is that we are also set to replicate the same troop withdrawal in Iraq. And being that this has galvanized in the aftermath of the Iranian revolution, the late 1970s, 1979, that really set forth a belief among Sunnis that a modern contemporary Islamic state could be established. Uh, and um, now the transition of the jihadist community is largely one that represents what happened in the aftermath of the Afghan civil war when the Taliban established control and they ended and depleted the, uh, the, the Soviets. What they see is likely to happen is that we will replicate what happened to the Soviets. The Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan and four months later, their entire system collapsed. And so they predict that will be the case with the West and that the war on attrition will resolve itself. But no longer is there a need then for them to attack the far enemy. And the original plan from those that disagreed with bin Laden was to send back deputies to the Arab authoritarian regimes that they wanted to overthrow. And so this does create a vacuum for training that, uh, and training camps that could facilitate uh, better ability for uh, transnational jihadists to establish a sanctuary from which they could plan and attack and resurrect themselves in the Middle East more broadly. So at each level of counterterrorism against the jihadist and the power state competition, this spells potential disaster for the United States if we don't transition. And at the domestic level, we are largely hyperpolarized to the point where it will be very difficult now. This is really going to affect the ability of the Democrats to maintain control of the Senate and Congress in midterms. It also is resurrecting massive support for Donald Trump re-election. Um, and we're completely polarized uh, and are turned away from our ability to counter violent extremist messaging because we have transitioned to primary focus on domestic extremism. And that has a lot of complexity and complications. But from a broad mm -hmm. bird's eye view, those are the dynamics that are intersecting right now at the moment that we should be thinking about. I don't Thank know you. if we really are. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. I, I wanted to give Nihad an opportunity to weigh in. Nihad, did you want to weigh in on the question as well? Um, yeah. Marhaba, uh, Muhammad Zayak. Actually, I think we... Shakira. I think we... Um, uh, I mean, how, how Taliban or, or how, how whatever is happening now will affect us uh, come 31st of August, 
when it's when when uh, is the deadline for all American um, forces uh, to to leave uh, uh, Kabul, e Afghanistan, even the uh, Kabul uh, airport? I think this is something that uh, we need to wait a little bit to to see. Although, as uh, Jesse said, so far things are really very um, uh, very dark. Uh, something we keep an eye on is what's happening in Panjir. Uh, this is a state to the north of Kabul where the former Vice President Amarullah Saleh uh, has taken, um, not refuge, but sanctuary maybe, and with the son of Ahmed Shah Masoud, they're uh, forming a coalition of some sort and they are declaring resistance against the Taliban. Um, Pakistan's role in, in everything and in, 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 in this whole thing uh, has not been innocent, uh, I believe, from what I read. And uh, because let's, uh, I mean, Taliban, 800,000 fighters, they managed to do all of this all by themselves while the uh, Afghan army uh, that is well equipped by the Americans and well trained, supposedly. Uh, they didn't even fight to keep territories. There was something severely uh, wrong. And uh, um, from what I read, Pakistan offered a great assistance to uh, Taliban. Uh, Taliban has become a fact on the ground with the, with the American attitude and with the American behavior. And with this, um, every country in the region will have to, to um, well, weigh in. And if Taliban will rule Afghanistan, Afghanistan is not a small country. And there's an Indian saying, uh, I think it's, a, it's an excerpt from uh, an Indian book. Uh, I can't remember the author. But if Afghanistan is well, if Afghanistan is right, then the entire Asia is okay. So Afghanistan is not something to be taken lightly. One thing I can say about the implications uh, with regard to the uh, foreign policy of the United States. I mean, as a citizen of the Middle East, what happened has undermined any opportunity, I think, for any future project, let's say, of the American uh, administration, whatever. I mean, we, we, we could deal with Trump. We understood where Trump was going. But with, with Biden, we thought things would be difficult. Put aside the Al-Qaeda, put aside the jihadists. Taliban have hijacked Kabul. They have hijacked Afghanistan. They have no credit for anything that the Afghan people have achieved over the past 20 years. They have hijacked it. It's gone. That's all I have to say. Uh, thank you so much for those thoughts. Um... Wow, there's so much to process in this conversation. Um, Kirsten, we wanted to bring you into the conversation. What question or comment? Thanks for bringing me up. Um, so I am a humanitarian and I also work in the gender equity space. I've uh, worked with Afghani refugees for the past five years in, in camps over in Greece. And so, um, you know, I've been able to hear firsthand stories of of what people have gone through, um, the, the fear, the, the violence, the, all of it. Um, it's terrifying and horrible and awful. And in the humanitarian community that I'm involved with and the circles that I roll in, there's a lot of kind of both fear and panic, but also an energy of 
should we be reserving judgment and should we kind of see where this goes and and uh, respond accordingly and so um i know for myself i kind of go between the two and trying to be optimistic but also being very realistic based on the the people that i know and love that have been put in severe danger because of this and so i'm i'm wondering what all of your perspectives are on this is this a situation where she we should embrace reserving judgment or should we begin to start planning for worst case scenarios because uh, you know, especially in humanitarian crises like this, it's important to kind of have as much time as possible to prepare ourselves. And so uh, where do you each fall in all of this? How do you think we should, as a humanitarian community, respond? Nihad, why don't you start? Yeah, okay. Thank you, Kirsten, and thank you so much for um, everything that you're doing. I can understand now a little bit. I can understand the the value of uh, and appreciate the value of, uh, of your work because um, I speak to my friends uh, all the time, and I know they would kill for someone like you to to help them out. Uh, I think yeah, we we should start planning that there is no room for uh, reserving um, judgment until later because we already see the deterioration of the situation and actually some of the friends that I'm communicating with they started uh, talking to me I mean uh, about their horrible situation only yesterday and today so this means that with more time that passes the situation actually becomes worse because the Taliban uh, they were so euphoric with their uh, march into Kabul and uh, they were trying to be nice and calm but now they're showing their their, their true colors let's say ironically so because they removed the uh, Afghan uh, flag um, but uh, yes, it's uh, it's not something to be taken lightly, and uh, the, most of uh, of the Afghanistan budget has always been uh, from donor countries, and I think um, it will be good now to increase that and to to start working on the humanitarian crisis. There are people who don't have money because the banks are closed; they don't have money, and they they can't. Um, well, they have to go to, to and work. That's why we see uh, uh, pictures and images and videos of populated uh, streets in Kabul because this is it. It's not about the government. The government really doesn't exist in Kabul. You don't see it. You see, you see it in the traffic offices and you see it in the bad infrastructure. But other than that, it's the Afghan people. And they're doing an amazing job all on their own, by the way. And they have to earn their living. Now with this situation, uh, women can't go out, they can't work. Women support families, not only themselves, but they support families as well. With Taliban forbidding women from work, and we remember, Zabihullah Mujahid from the seat of uh, Dawa Khan Minapal when uh, he was asked about whether Taliban will allow female journalists to work, he said, let's leave this for the future. <laughs> I mean, uh, it was obvious, the message was obvious from uh, Taliban. I, I think after the um, Zabihullah Mujahid conference, there was no room to um, preserve judgment. Go ahead and plan, people are suffering. Um, there, everything is collapsing unless for the few people who are able to work and provide services like hospitals, but people can't find food. I know this from my friends and people fear for their lives as well 
because at the end of the day there's still no government you don't know who to refer to uh, in this apparatus so any talib uh, on the street could shoot you just because you at one point worked with the americans as an interpreter or or whatever so the situation is miserable thank you kirsten thank you for your thoughts Nihad. i'm i i appreciate that and would love to connect um, to talk about how i could support any of the people I'll just follow up briefly and say that uh, reservation of judgment is true for all of the reasons that Nehad mentioned. I believe it's impossible to make predictions, but I do believe that there's definitely going to be a humanitarian crisis um, that is uh, very, very serious as time goes on. And that coupled with the uh, rationale for um, really thinking about safety and really thinking about safety concerns as government will likely prove to be ineffective. There will be more and more effort to blame it on covert operatives and to construct conspiracy theories that will lead to a paranoia in the minds of those particularly foot level soldiers that will be policing the streets. This is exactly what sort of happened with ISIS. uh, Once they started to pinpoint everybody in their, uh, in their surroundings as a Jesus or a spy Uh, and to retaliate against even the innocent, even the most, you know, widely known innocents. And journalism, uh, as uh, Nihad suggested, that implications beyond that are that anybody uh, that is a female uh, will largely have their voice restricted. But in general, uh, journalism uh, will be plagued with an inability to report anything uh, that goes against the narrative that Taliban is uh, espousing. Uh, And so... From a humanitarian perspective, I think it's a duty upon all of us to be and to do whatever we can do uh, to assist. But those on the ground uh, that are left behind, that are humanitarian providers, as time goes on, I think will be more and more target and subject to um, punitive uh, prospects, whether that's incarceration or um, punishment in the form of uh, uh, killing or uh, even uh, Uh, other alternatives. Um, Zargona, hopefully I'm saying that correctly. No, that's correct, Denise. Hi, everyone. Yes, um, in terms of like um, about the whole situation, what's going on back home, because I am from Afghanistan myself and I belong to the Hazara minority group. I have family members back home right now stuck, especially my aunt who who worked as a mayor of a suburb um, for the government. um, And she's a widow with four children. So just before the Taliban takeover uh, right now, she had many death threats by the Taliban. And just recently she had it, she was involved in an incident where they they really aimed they actually aimed at her her head and they shot at her, but the bullet just barely grazing for her forehead. Uh, so thankfully she survived that incident. What I'm trying to say basically that there are there are these um these are all real live, you know, on the ground experiences that people go through, and especially as women. And if you belong to a minority group, things are very, very, you know, dire for you. And you're at much more risk of being um, persecuted just because you belong to that minority group. And if you're a woman as well, on top of that, then there goes, you know, your, your life literally. Um, but the concerns that I have is just that um, we... Yeah, this is the main concern that as as women, we will never be able to 
like I'm so thankful that I've, my parents decided to come to Australia and and build this life for us and give this life for us. But at the same time, I've, I feel so guilty that why do I have all these when when women back in my country, are, you know, they're, they're, these normal fundamental rights are taken away from them. Thank you so much for sharing that. I know how how difficult, how terrible, how stressful, how challenging. I mean, there's so many emotions um, when you are sitting as a as a transplant to a new country. Um, I share that experience. I'm from Jamaica. Um, but when you watch turmoil in your home country, it, it is a different, it's a, it, it hits you in a different way, in a different space. And we're, we are praying fervently and just sending best wishes for your family, that they are able to stay safe and that women and, and children and, and everyone um, going through this, this tragedy, this trial right now, that this can be resolved in the most peaceful way possible. And as we're wrapping up, I know, Linda, you want to give a few minutes for Nihad and Jesse to just share their last thoughts and, you know, any last bits of advice or action steps. I know we're all feeling very impotent and helpless as we watch the news. Um, so, um, uh, Nihad, did you want to share any um, summary statements? To recap, uh, Afghanistan, whatever is happening in Afghanistan, is not something that's happening far away from where ever we are it touches us not only as uh, hum- as humans because what's happening is inhumane but also uh, when it comes to this rise of jihadists and i'm saying jihadists um without any definition of of religion um uh, because that's really complicated and uh, uh, we need to to fight those extremists, whether they come from um, a religion-based ideology or uh, or otherwise. Surely, what's happening in Afghanistan uh, w- will embolden and has already emboldened jihadists everywhere in the world and has touched us. I have friends in Afghanistan. Alhamdulillah, I can call them friends. And from your Hazara community, uh, Zorganijan, uh, and they are great people, Pashtuns, Uzbek, Tajik, all Afghans from all walks of life. And this is the Afghan that we, I, I will miss. And the implications are dire for uh, our future years. Uh, but maybe we can visit this uh, topic uh, later with the more uh, optimism. Uh, one final thing that I keep um, uh, thinking about is that when it comes to women and hijab, it's not really about hijab. They want to, they want this topic to be about hijab and about Islam. Well, I for one refuse that it's not about hijab because uh, all the uh, female relatives in my uh, family wear the hijab, the proper hijab, and they are doctors, they are pharmacists, they are university professors, they are housewives. My sister is a major in the Jordanian army and she wears the hijab. So the hijab really is not an issue. They wanted to make it, they want to make it uh, an issue of hijab. It's not. It's the oppression they exercise and the tools they use. And God bless you all. Yeah, I'm taking it out. There's a lot I could say about what was stated. I will suggest that One of my key takeaways, having been an individual that was intoxicated, and I literally mean intoxicated by the ideology, is that it is most powerful when it is perceived to be 
uh, a, a period of time when it is victorious. And so what we have to think about is the spreading uh, and the influence along the lines of essentially what will always be in a contemporary age, a reversion to an interpretation of Sharia, which is really basically a, re, uh, a reaction to modernity and to a certain sense of frustration that manifests itself and is framed religiously, but has nothing to do with religion at all. It has to do with identity. It has to do uh, with feelings of uh, humiliation and frustration. And that is important and imperative as we step forward, because the war on terror is indeed winding down. And one of the key takeaways is that we should learn from it is that military and kinetic action alone cannot, in a world of interconnectivity, when we are in contact with each other on Twitter, Facebook, uh, on Clubhouse, within a few degrees of separation uh, away from one another, we are not living in an era where ideas and where behaviors don't have impact around the world. We also are living in an era where because of social media, we have a very limited attention span. And so it might be very easy for us to forget about the women and the um, innocents and the civilians and the state of circumstances in Afghanistan as the weeks go by. But this will be a long term problem that is at the same time a crisis. It is an opportunity because Throughout the frustration, in um, and we had a grant that we were uh, ready to promote uh, reconciliation in Afghanistan that was pulled away immediately in the aftermath of these events. We know many beautiful people on the ground in Afghanistan, um, and uh, this is very unfortunate because it takes out the true voices of power and activism that have created opportunities for human rights promotion, the valuable humanitarian providers that don't uh, fit the mold and that lets people know wherever we're operating in the world that the United States, despite the conspiracy theories, um, is not solely about its government and the military counterterrorism interventions. And so we have an obligation, I think, right now to realize that by standing up and defending human rights and liberal uh, liberalism uh, in Afghanistan and not forgetting about this situation in the current uh, uh, the current state of affairs, then we ourselves can promote that value that we claim to uphold the most, which is that freedom and liberty of choice in religion, uh, in belief, um, is the way, and it is documentably the way, to produce uh, fulfilling needs from a governmental perspective that give people the best opportunities to feed themselves and their families, to clothe themselves, and to create situations of shelter and education that can propel uh, the, uh, the quality of life forward. When you have the implementation of these kinds of barbaric law and they're strict and they're rigid, they have no chance to succeed. So it's easy for Islamists and jihadists to counter regimes and to point out their ineffectiveness, but there is very few, if any, circumstances where Islamists have come to power and improve the conditions of the people on the ground. Um, and so we are looking at the very real probability that we will face a crisis and a humanitarian disaster. My only words are that we can pray and we can act uh, upon principles uh, that... Uh, are antithetical to uh, the hypocrisy that many people see in the region. And that now it is an opportunity for us all to sort of um, uh, back up uh, what we claim to believe in and to not remember and to promote and to do the limited things that we can do and to pray for an opportunity to continue to assist. Uh, because in general, I fear uh, domestic and international uh, circumstances with a synthesis of consideration for the geopolitical uh, maintenance uh, of the liberal world order is in danger around the world. And there is a rising, creeping authoritarianism uh, that is uh, certainly growing to a point where it is scary. And this onsets another uh, event that will further facilitate that. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to really think about, 
you know, what we are doing uh, in general, not just with our lives, but with our actions outside of the workplace and things of that nature and how we can, in a sense, uh, impact the world by acting locally and thinking globally at the same time, because we really do uh, have an obligation uh, to, uh, to preserve uh, uh, what is good uh, and to uh, promote uh, what is best in the interests of uh, everyone. And it's beautiful to see people from all around the world unite and have discussions like this, because I think it's invigorating and it's empowering and it's motivating. And so um, as we proceed forward as an organization that is trying to grow and develop and do uh, better work uh, and partnering with people in the region, I think it's ultimately crucial and essential that we all uh, stay focused uh, and stay concentrated on uh, making sure that uh, we don't forget uh, as the weeks go by uh, and there's less and less coverage and less and less to remind us of the circumstances because uh, the situation will continue. These are difficult times. These are difficult topics, but we must continue to talk and listen and learn. Here at our Voices Matter podcast, we are committed to doing just that, one conversation at a time. We will continue to share stories and elevate not only our voices, but the voices of those who cannot speak for themselves. If the work we are doing resonates with you, please subscribe download, share, and then let us know what you think. As always, thanks so much for giving our guests permission to speak and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. We'll see you next time.